Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to episode 92 of the Becoming Human podcast. This episode features John Skurlock. John is a bush pilot and aerial photographer who spends his time circling the snow-capped mountain ranges of North America to photograph staggering peaks and glistening glaciers. John was tasked with photographing most of the glaciers in North America, which he produced some iconic and beautiful images. I found out about John when I was trying to get some beta or some pictures of some mountaineering routes I was going to send in the North Cascades. And then I realized that John had some of the most magnificent photos of the mountains that I so desperately wanted to climb. Soon I realized that John had even built his own plane. Sounds like my kind of adventure. You can check out John's photos of the Cascades, the Rockies, and more, and find his new book, Snow and Spire, Flights to Winter in the North Cascade Range, at jaggedridgeimaging.com. John and I talked about what it is to be a bush pilot, a mountaineer, and just an overall lover of the wilderness. And all things high. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed this wide-ranging conversation as much as I did. Without any further ado, here's John Skurlock. Let me see. Okay. Should be good. My bubbles are good. All right. So, John, um, you, from what I read, is you're a pilot and you built your own plane. Is yes, that that's true. So, what was the process like to build your own plane? Can you walk me through that? Um, well, it was a kit. And in the federal aviation regulations, uh, there's a section of the regulations called the experimental uh, category. And that was created, as I understand it, for educational purposes. And, you know, uh, and so within that group of regulations, you're allowed to build, your, build and fly your own airplane. Uh, kits, there's a requirement that um, you, you uh, build at least 51% of the kit. Um, you could, in other words, you could, in theory, buy some airplane that just has like 10 or 20 screws to put in it and call it a kit. Well, the FAA doesn't allow that. Wow. So basically, um, the kit came to me in sections. There was a fuselage and, and the wings and the tail section and so on. And I built each one of those uh, in turn. And then I did the final assembly. And, at first I did it at home until the pieces got too big and then final assembly, uh, you have to have a large building for that. And uh, so I have a hangar up at Concrete's Airport um, that I built with a partner and uh, I did the final assembly in there. Wow, that's quite the commitment. What was your motivation for building your own plane? Well, after I got my pilot's license, you know, it's almost a universal trade. If you get your pilot's license, you'd like to own an airplane. Mm -hmm. And uh, back then there was a guy in concrete, uh, Ralph Preisel, uh, who's passed away now, but he was a scratch builder. He built airplanes from plans. And uh, in hanging around the airport up there, you'd talk to people like him and he'd say, well, you can get a way better airplane if you build it yourself compared to buying it. Mm -hmm. um, 
on a, on a cost basis, I think is what he's referring to. That's kind of like when you build your own house, I would imagine. Yes, it's real. it would be very similar. And so uh, that's what tipped me onto it. And so um, there's a small core of, of, uh, of home builders up, up in concrete and at various other airports. But uh, you know, that's, that's kind of how it happened. And were you getting your pilot's license for commercial reasons, or was it no, no? When I was a young kid, I was found to be profoundly nearsighted, mm -hmm. and so up until that point, I had this dream that I was going to be in the Air Force and fly jets, oh, wow. you know. But then, as a, as a third grader, my hopes were dashed. <laughs> <laughs> so I never pursued it after that until I was um, in my twenties, and a friend of mine went out and took an introductory flight lesson, and then he came back and said, well, you don't have to have perfect vision to get your private pilot license. Oh, really? Yeah. So uh, I went out and got my pilot's license. And he took a few lessons, and he never flew again after that, so... Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. So when did this... Uh, how long have you been flying for? Uh, well, I think I got my pilot's license when I was probably 25 or... 27 around in there and I'm going to turn 65 this year so what does it look like to uh, I guess recreationally fly like what do you in what ways do you do you fly for fun well there's all sorts of activities um, you can take your airplane over to Idaho and go camping mm -hmm. um, you actually can do it here in this mm -hmm. state you could fly out to Friday Harbor for lunch or you could go visit your uncle down in Bend. Um, you could travel across the country and visit relatives if you want. Uh, you can just go up and fly around and look at the view. Well, and economically, like when you, if you're to, to travel, right, and just to take yourself to to these places, uh, is it on par with like with driving or more expensive? Um, it depends on the distance you're traveling. <laughs> And there's kind of these quasi-studies that show that if it's, I can't remember the exact figures, but it's like if, if you can drive to it in like two or three hours, mm -hmm. it's faster to drive it rather than to fly it. If it's between like two or three hours and eight hours of driving, it would be significantly faster to fly yourself. And beyond that, it becomes uneconomical if you're looking at it strictly in dollars and time sense, and it's it's much more efficient to go commercially. Wow. So, for example, if I wanted to go visit family down in Florida from here, it would be way more efficient time and cost-wise to fly commercially. Um, but like I said, if I want to go down to Bend and visit my uncle, um, time and cost-wise, it's you know, more efficient for me just to fly myself down there. Because I have a, something that I've, all, I've always wanted to be a pilot, but mm -hmm. I'm not interested in being a commercial pilot. Right. And so I've, all, I've always wondered, like, uh, in what ways could I enjoy being a pilot without doing it for work in that instance? And I've yeah, always, well, um, I think flying for fun is the best option, of course. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's many airline pilots who also own small airplanes, and that's their fun flying right there. Not that they don't love their jobs, because I know commercial pilots and they love their job, but when they just want to go up and fly around and 
you know, not think about too much other than just the fun of what they're doing, then they'll go hop in their little airplane and go fly around. And for the airplane that you built, uh, what kind of airplane is it? Is it like a single? I'm not familiar with airplanes. It's a single engine. It's a two-seater side-by-side. It's a kit called Vans, a Vans Aircraft RV6. Uh, they don't make the kit anymore. It was uh, before computer-aided drawing and CNC machinery, and so they have newer models that are produced on those machines, so the assembly process is way simpler. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's pretty small, and it's fast. Uh, it's a great traveling machine, um, but it's also really fun just to fly locally. Mm-hmm. So it's it's uh, pretty docile. Uh, it's just a, a fun, a fun toy. Yeah. Well, how many people can you um, hold? Uh, two. Two. Yeah. And are you able to? How many pounds are you able to hold in the plane? Uh, it'll fit two adults and sixty pounds of baggage, I believe, is the number. Uh, you have to be careful because on that particular model, it's easy to go over the maximum gross weight. So typically. If you're going to put two adults in it, you're going to have to take less fuel than full fuel, or you're going to have to reduce the amount of baggage or, or those sorts of things, because loading in an airplane is really crucial, mm-hmm. just like it might be in a boat, for example, how you load it. That makes the stability of it. And how, if, if you have just a single uh, person in the plane, how far can you go without having to refuel? Um, I could stretch it out to about 700 or 800 miles, perhaps, but that would be pushing it. Um, You're up against two factors, both the fuel and the fact that every so often you need to use a bathroom and there's (laughs) no bathrooms in it. Oh, wait, explain this. (laughs) Well, I mean, like I said, you you don't, there's no, like, it's not like a commercial jet. Mm -hmm. So, just like driving in your car, you know, periodically you're going to have to take a rest stop. So, you have to allow for that. Whoa, that's really cool. I never, because my only experience with airplanes is commercially. I've never thought of that, I guess. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, if you're going to fly in small planes, you better think of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, have you ever had to land, or do you have the ability to land um, not on an airstrip, but, like, somewhere in, like, the, the airstrips that they have in, like, the national forests and stuff? Yes, I've flown into backcountry strips in Idaho. My airplane's not really built for that kind of thing like a super cub might be or some of these you know dedicated backcountry airplanes so i have to be careful i have to pick relatively smooth airstrips but yes i can land on unimproved strips grass strips and so on um where are your favorite places to fly for fun i would say um I love going over to Idaho to go camping. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't do a lot of it, but it's just you know, really uh, satisfying to fly into some of these areas and Which just part pitch of your tent. Idaho is your favorite. Well, there's uh, airstrips all over the uh, all over Idaho. Idaho is sort of the what, they, what some refer to as sort of the cradle of backcountry flying. Wow. And and it's. Uh, there's uh, airstrips in like the Frank Church, yeah. River of No Return Wilderness, um, Big Creek remind, is uh, one that I think of that I've been into a few times. Um, when the Wilderness Act was written, 
uh, Frank Church was a senator from Idaho, and he made sure to uh, write in um, the airstrips in Idaho to preserve them from being shut down because of wilderness designation. And so to this day, um, uh, pilots in Idaho have an organization and they lobby to preserve those airstrips and keep them open. And they do work parties out there and so on and so forth. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. Especially somewhere like the Frank Church. It's a beautiful country out there. Yeah, there's uh, airstrips in the Frank Church and the Selway Bitterroot. Um, they're scattered around. I mean, if you look at the aviation charts, you'll see them. Do you ever go to uh, northern Idaho at all? I used to live out there. Yeah, I hiking. flew into Priest Lake before. Priest Lake, yeah. It's yeah. a nice area. Yeah. Um, and what made you transition into aerial photography? I mean, your work that I've seen on your website is beautiful. Oh, thanks. Um, well, I was always interested in photography. I had a little camera as a kid, a film camera that my grandparents gave me. I uh, shot slides um, back when slide film was going. And uh, pretty much as soon as I started flying my airplane, I was up around Mount Baker. And uh, I was a climber, and I was really quite obsessed with it and familiar with uh, the Cascade Alpine Guides, the Becky Guides, for example. And those are notorious for the, as I'm sure you know, the poor quality of the illustrations, um, which I attribute mostly to the printing process. Mm -hmm. Because you take these photographs, like these big film photographs of Austin, from Austin Post, and his original negatives were like seven by seven, mm -hmm. and you could print those as big as this, that wall right there. Yeah. But in the Alpine Guide, they get reduced down to a very small size, and then the route description is laid over top of that, and um, it's kind of sketchy to say the least. And so when I started flying around Baker, I quickly realized that I had a very nice view of things that were kind of mysterious previously, and I just started photographing Mount Baker. Um, and the more I did that, particularly in the wintertime, the more I uh, got sort of obsessed with what I was seeing further out, and this kind of gradually expanded the envelope, uh, moving out and out uh, into the North Cascades. And uh, I just, uh, finally, I, I kind of made a determination that I was going to photograph everything that was out there. I wasn't going to leave anything unphotographed. What made you so drawn to, to wanting to make that commitment? I had already started doing some of it, and I was working with a geologist from the Volcano Observatory in Vancouver, Kevin Scott, and... Um, my photograph started to get out into the climbing community and I kind of started hearing some rumblings that other people were thinking about doing it, yet I was already there doing it. And that was some incentive right there. I, I, I wanted to leave nothing untouched as far as I was concerned. And I, that's what I did. Hold on just a second. Yeah. So, where were we at? Commitment we were... to the Northern Cascades and wanting to capture every single mountain. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, well, I mean, that was kind of the process back then. It was a combination of, uh, you know, 
not wanting to leave anything untouched with the notion that I was able to produce better images than what was available in the guidebooks. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what I did. I gra you know, gradually expanded out. I had other areas that I was really interested in and I, you know, kept going further and further afield. Yeah. And is the Northern Cascades the only area that you uh, photograph or oh, no. other ranges? No, I've been all the way into Southeast Alaska. I've been down to the Sierra Nevada range in California. I've been into Colorado, Wyoming, Mount, uh, Montana, Idaho. Um, I had a uh, project that started in 2007 to photograph glaciers, all the glaciers in the lower 48 states. And that was uh, sponsored initially by a scientist at Portland State University, Andrew Fountain. And over the years, that kind of grew in scope. It started with the North Cascades, and uh, eventually we did all the state of Washington, Oregon, California. This is over years. And um, uh, let's see, there was sponsorship also from the National Park Service, um, Colorado State University, Grand Teton National Park, Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, but this uh, past year, in the fall of 2018, is when I finished um, by photographing all the glaciers in the state of Colorado. Uh, there's a few places in Wyoming I hadn't gotten to. Um, Grand Teton National Park, the Absaroka Mountains, uh, yes. the Bighorns. You had the opportunity to photograph almost nearly all of the glaciers in the lower 48. That's incredible. every glacier. Every glacier. Yeah, every named glacier, I should say. That's incredible. You must have a deep familiarization with the the topography in the lower 48, at least in the. Well, the you know, it's a big world out there, yeah. and I would n never ever claim to have seen it all. And uh, but I've been extremely fortunate to fly over and photograph mountains all over the American West mm -hmm. and uh, largely because of that project I mean I, I probably wouldn't have done I wouldn't have flown into those areas had it not been for the project mm -hmm. what was the fav your favorite area that you, that you flown into for that project um, I wouldn't say I have a real favorite there were some real challenges Colorado's pretty high altitude what, what kind of challenges does that present um, well, you have to be on oxygen for starters. What? Oh. Yeah, because you're flying at altitudes of 15 to 17,000 feet. Most of the time on this glacier photography project, you're looking down on the glaciers. You're not down in the peaks flying around. Mm -hmm. So there's that. Um, the weather in these distant ranges can be different than what we're familiar with here in the North Cascades. So you have to you know, plan pretty carefully for that. Um, one of the days I was working in Colorado, it was nice and sunny in the morning, but I was over by um, the front range and some small puffy clouds started to appear. And I worked my way northward and I kept looking back over my shoulder and pretty soon those puffy clouds were turning into thunderheads. Oh. And finally I was uh, done doing what I needed to do that day, so I went into Steamboat Springs and uh, within about an hour or so of landing in Steamboat Springs, there were thunderstorms everywhere just hammering down all around. 
Oh, and wow. uh, you wouldn't want to have been flying over those mountains in those conditions. That's a close call. I wouldn't call it close. I mean, I you know knew it, knew it was coming. Yeah. Um, that's that's kind of some of the challenges. And that's why it's important to be able to understand the nuances of the weather weather patterns, right? Yes. Yeah, I'm I'm obsessive in some ways, and one of my obsessions is to know and understand the weather. So. Uh, do you take uh, like joy in that? Is that fun for you, or is it just an, is it necessary? I enjoy it. I wouldn't call it joy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just uh, something I'm highly interested in. Mm-hmm. I, I could have been a meteorologist. You know, cool. but who knows? Mm-hmm. That was then, and this is now. Well, that's what I, the thing. One of the things that I'm I love about getting more into the outdoors, uh, especially like mountaineering and having to pay attention to the weather patterns. Uh, but more than that, having to understand rock. Like, it, you just get sure. the nuance of, of the forest and the mountains. Because when I first started, uh, I just, you know, I do day hikes, which were great. And I would look at a forest and I'm like, oh, there's a lot of trees. And right. And, you know, you'd look at a mountain, and that's a really pretty mountain. I, I like the way that the, that the peaks are shaped, right? Um, but as I get into, like, rock climbing, and it's like, oh, what kind of rock is that? And in learning where did that rock come from, like especially reading like the Becky guy. Right? Sure, and absolutely. I've been having so much fun with that, but there's actual meaning behind it for me to learn what the weather pattern is. Oh, absolutely. Are. Yeah, I think uh, greater understanding that you have of all the natural processes is going to uh, enlighten you, it's going to keep you safer, mm-hmm. it's going to help your judgment when you're out there. Um, and I think it's going to just increase your appreciation and your overall enjoyment of it. Yeah. Um, what's it like to be to take photographs while you're flying? Are you able to like put it on autopilot and then take photographs? Or? No, it doesn't have an autopilot. Um, so like texting it, and driving? Well, I wouldn't call it that. It's, it's, it's stable. And unlike a car where you can veer off the road, there's no road to veer off of. Yeah. So... In my particular application, I would just, as I approach the objective, you know, let's say I was up in the Canadian Rockies photographing Mount Robson, I could see Mount Robson from 100 miles away, and as I got closer, say 50 miles away, I would start preparing, getting the camera ready, getting all my gear ready, and then as I'm, as I draw very close, uh, I would reduce the power of the airplane to slow down because it's easier to do things when you're not going quite so fast. And then I just uh, circle the mountain, wind conditions permitting, uh, in a counterclockwise rotation because I always photograph out the left side of the airplane. And I put it in a slight bank. It's stable, so I can keep the wing. It's a low-wing airplane. I keep the wing out of the picture. And then just uh, circle uh, doing photography. I didn't even consider that, that you have to have the learn how to get a proper orientation of the plane so that you can have the full scenery in view. Yeah, I mean, uh, once in a while you'll see one of my photographs that has the wing in it, but that's, it's either on purpose or it's a mistake. Mm-hmm. You know, those two options. <laughs> Who did you look to for aerial photography, or have you just been figuring this out on your own? Well, there's been some great aerial photographers, some famous aerial photographers, like the first name that comes to mind is Bradford Washburn, um, who was a pioneer of aerial photography, particularly in Alaska. Um, Austin Post is a 
great uh, aerial photographer for the Geological Survey. Photographed glaciers all over Western North America. Um, I knew him personally before he passed away. Uh, a real inspiration. Never graduated from high school, but ended up with an honorary PhD from the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Um, in the North Cascades, uh, a real pioneer was Loggie Wernstedt, whose name you'll see in the Cascade Alpine Guide as having done many first ascents over in the Pasayton. And after he got a little bit older and stopped doing these big excursions into the wilderness for mapping purposes in the 20s and 30s, he uh, uh, did pioneering work uh, in aerial photography, uh, shooting out of the backs of biplanes and kind of rickety biplanes. Oh, that sounds like some adventure. Wow. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and he's underappreciated, I think, outside the climbing community and the Forest Service. Uh, but a real true pioneer in the North Cascades, for sure. How long have you been climbing mountains for? Well, I started when I first came out here in the late 1970s. I was never too much on highly technical mountaineering. Um, I recall one time going to a presentation by Dee Molinar, and he made the statement that, you know, we weren't really climbers, we were just steep hikers. <laughs> I, I was somewhere between that and, you know, technical climbing. And do you still climb? Uh, not so much. I think the last thing I did was I climbed Mount Hood about five years ago. What's uh, one of your favorite climbs that you've done? Um, back in the 1990s, uh, some friends and I did the Silverhorn route on the north side of Mount Athabasca in the Canadian Rockies. Ooh. That was a really fun, huge wild. adventure. That same trip we were up on the Columbia Ice Field. That was a really gigantic trip. Did you, have you spent a lot of time on uh, hiking on glaciers? Oh, a fair amount. Not as much as others. I mean, I've done uh, northern pickets. I've been into the southern pickets. Um, How was the northern pickets? That's a trip that I'm planning this summer. Uh, it was very challenging. Um, I was in as good a shape as I've ever been probably back then, and it was still difficult, um, but highly rewarding. You know, we climbed Mount Challenger, um, amongst other peaks over there. It's just, it's a, it's a marvelous area. It's, I, when I moved over here, I moved from uh, northern Idaho into northwestern Washington. Sure. And I just started getting into hiking. And that expanded into ultra running and mountaineering. Mm -hmm, sure. I've been reading uh, Jack Kerouac and uh, Gary Snyder as well. Yeah. Like, uh, I guess for the audience, um, Jack Kerouac, you know, riding on the road and having all of his cool, I guess, urban adventures. Oh yeah, I mean, it's, it's classic. Mm -hmm. You know, Desolation Angels. Did you read that? Um, no, I have not. That's the next one that I'm going to pick up. Because that's the one that deals particularly in the first part of it with his uh, time spent up at the Desolation Fire Lookout. And that's a 
when I was reading a book called Poets on the Peaks. Right. Which that's what introduced me to uh, Gary Snyder and then more of Kerouac, Kerouac's work. Sure. And drew the connection because like I'd hike at, uh, up at Park View yep. and I'd see these lookouts and I knew that they were manned, you know, once for uh, for them to be able to observe any fire danger. Uh, yes. And that took me off to oh you know there was some meaning behind this it's more sure. than that there was a I used to be a poet and now I'm more into comedy uh, but I kind of go back and forth and I've never I was never introduced to Kerouac, Kerouac when I did poetry but now it's like oh I'm, I'm running these peaks to where I see these lookouts and then there's these poets that I love their style and it just exploded for me sure um, and then learning about the rich history and the fire lookouts between you know these uh, these writers it really excited me to explore and understand the area more which brought me to mountaineering because it was like I wanted I'd love to have like an intimate knowledge of these peaks and then that introduced me to your work because I was trying to do more research and I'm like wow this guy has like some really beautiful photography and it's just cool to see someone who has such a fascination of the mountains and is uh, particularly in this area and sure but way further along than I am and developed in that uh, interest well I'm a little older than you <laughs> you know give it time yeah I, and there's a lot there's a lot of people like myself and like you um, I don't think I'm unique in my view of these mountains and you know my desire to be in a wilderness situation uh, that's what makes this part of the world so vibrant mm -hmm. you know I'm just fortunate that I had a little niche you know that I was able to carve out I was in the right place at the right time yeah I think that's something that uh, I've taken away from a lot of people in, in different fields which is just putting yourself out there and uh, trying to find that niche Right, find that you know scratch that itch because like I've been introduced to people throughout my life uh, who, who didn't necessarily do that, and it's kind of like tragic when you watch that. When you watch someone who's just you know suffering day in and day out, right? And they're, you know, getting up just to rinse, lather, repeat uh, with the same yeah. draw. Well, if you have that natural curiosity and you are interested in all sorts of things. Um, that's the kind of life you're going to lead. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter what your chosen endeavor is. I've always felt that accomplishment comes from some level of obsession. You know? Um, I could never have predicted I would be where I'm at now with it. I had no idea when I was younger. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I'm fortunate. Like so many people are fortunate to have that natural curiosity and a desire to get out and look over the horizon. Yeah, just see what's over the next band, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And when you were, before you were retired, uh, did did your work allow you to get out into the outdoors, or was that something that you would do on the weekend or when you had time? I was a paramedic for 35 years, so I worked in um, Skagit County for nine years, I worked in Snohomish County for a year. I was a flight paramedic for a couple years. I uh, then I did 26 years at the Bellingham Fire Department. Mm -hmm. So all of all of that time, I was working a 24-hour shift. So I'd be working a day, and then I'd have one or two days off, mm -hmm. and I'd periodically have five days off or four days off. 
So that work schedule did free me up to uh, do a lot of this uh, on my days off. It would have been way different had I been working uh, eight to five. Yeah. Just way different. Was that very intentional um, to have that schedule? Or no, no, that's just kind of a standard in uh, fire service or emergency services. It's different in big cities where they're busier, but in uh, mid to smaller communities, that's pretty much the norm. Uh, what drew you to becoming a paramedic? Unemployment. Unemployment? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I was, uh, I, I had uh, two degrees in forestry, and when I came up here, I couldn't get a job. And the community ambulance in concrete needed EMTs. And I had some Boy Scout first aid training, but that was it. But I got talked into taking an EMT class. And um, once I, I immediately got put on an ambulance as an EMT, but I realized I didn't know anything, so I started doing volunteer work at the hospital over here. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing led to another, and they sponsored me into paramedic school. And so that's how I got my paramedic certification. That's really cool. It's interesting that you had your degree in forestry, though, because, you know, having that crossover, that crossroad between forestry and then being a pilot, right, with your aerial photography. Yeah, well, I was interested in the outdoors since I was a young kid. I mean, I camped, I hiked, uh, I... Uh, you know, I'm not entirely sure forestry was the best choice of careers, considering <laughs> I went to school for so long in it, and I never really worked in it very much. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's the way life works, you know. It's unpredictable, and maybe one opportunity fades, but another one appears. And, you know, I, I've had ups and downs over the years, but mm -hmm. I look back, and I, I don't really regret much of anything, the way things have turned out. I like to hear that, man. And I, I take comfort in that, because often I, I wrestle with, like, I have I have these interests, right? Mm -hmm. And if I'm not focused and obsessed in trying to make this thing to be like the top person in that, not necessarily career, but you know, just pursuing that. Like if I wanted to do uh, writing, right? To sure. Be a best-selling author, like that. That is what a successful writer looks like to me. Or if I were to be, uh, you know, a pilot, I don't know, doing something that's like held in high regard. Right? Yeah. Uh, to to that group of people. But then I mean people like you where I, I see what you do and it's like, oh, that guy like has some really cool adventurous moments and he gets to do things that I really didn't think that you could, you know, spend your time doing. Um, being able to photograph like all these glaciers, having the knowledge that you do of these mountain ranges in, in the United States, like uh, from the air. And to know that that path was of like, oh yeah, I was I went to school for this and I just you know, I showed up every day, and here I am. It's no, absolutely not. You know, I can't, you know, I cannot. It was just like I said, I, I would have never imagined uh, when I was a teenager or in my early 20s, you know, kind of obsessed with climbing and so on, I, I would have never imagined, I could have never predicted this is how it would have turned out. Mm -hmm. um, so about all I could say was... Uh, be obsessive and pursue the things you want and you know if, if you are obsessed about seeking out fame then I think people will be disappointed you know, because I don't know you know there's, there's not too many fairy tale endings yeah I, agree. You know, I wouldn't call my situation a fairy tale ending I, mm -hmm. I, I 
I've just kind of done what I wanted, and I and I didn't worry too much about what other people were thinking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was I was I've always had the attitude to take it or leave it. I yeah. mean, you, you know, if you don't like the photograph, see ya. Yeah, it's just kind, <laughs> kind of, of my attitude just with my life. It's like you know, I want to do the things that I like, and if you don't like it, as long as it's not hurting you, I mean, I and to to that effect. If I continue to find what I like to do and learn how to do that well, it will be to the direct benefit of everyone around me because yeah. I'm a more informed person and more enthusiastic and I have more introspection so that I'm able to bring out the best version of myself when I sure, meet you. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, and that is only for the betterment of other people. Yeah. yeah. And there's, when you're getting into mountaineering, right, and climbing, what was your goal starting out? Was it just, I like to do this, so, you know, where's the next mountain to climb? Or did you have, like, an overarching, someday I want to climb? No, uh, I, I, I don't think I thought that far ahead. I mean, we were living in Oregon. Mount Hood's sitting right there. I always wanted to climb Mount Hood. There was a climbing class being offered. This was down in Corvallis. We took the climbing class. We climbed at Smith Rock. We did winter camping and travel you know, stuff like that. We uh, worked, We went up to Elliott Glacier, learned glacier travel and crevasse rescue and so on and so forth. And I, <clears throat> I, I think in retrospect, I just wanted to be up high and see the view. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I never really, I never really thought of it in the grander scheme of things. I just wanted to be out there. I was highly attracted to wilderness. I wanted to be in wilder places. Almost more of a goal than technical climbing, I would say. So, like, wilder places, that's very interesting. Because I'm kind of in a similar mindset where, like, at least with rock climbing, I'm not interested in trying to get to, like, 513, 514. Right? No. I just want to go to, like, the, that's why I want to go to the, uh, the pickets. You know, they're sure. difficult, but it's mainly because of where it is. Absolutely. It's so bright. Yeah, I, um, that's one of the things about my photography is I'm not interested in photographing stuff that's had a lot of photographs taken of it. I mean, I don't, I don't see, you know, if, like if I flew up to Denali, what, what would my photographs add? Mm-hmm. You know, that's been photographed a billion times. And the, the same sort of in general with Mount Rainier or places like that. I mean, I have photographed Mount Rainier frequently. But I, I'm much more, you know, like the photography I've done in the Coast Mountains of British Columbia, uh, the Canadian Rockies, the Columbia Mountains of British Columbia. I've always, you know, that just fits right with my desire to photograph stuff that's rarely been seen, uh, seldom visited, uh, just remote and wild. And that's really, other than the glacier photography, that's what I've kind of tried to do. And that's, that's cool because that's kind of what I'm trying to do in the sense of just exploring those by foot, right? Absolutely. And getting that, you know, knowledge of it. And that's why, like, the Pesaten wilderness is so interesting to me. Oh, absolutely. I love the Pesaten. And, so, yeah. yeah, with the Pesaten wilderness, one of my, or that's why I got into ultra running was because that was the way that I figured I can get to the places. Not necessarily the quickest, but I could see the most of, like, these wild places out here. Sure. You know, I can turn a multi-day event into, like, a one- or two-day event. Sure. And, it, yeah, I love it so much. And I, I didn't even realize, though, like, how how much opportunity there is um, f- 
for that level of exploration here in the North Cascades. Uh, where, where is, in your opinion, some of the most wilder places that interest you in the North Cascades? Well, some years ago, uh, a friend of mine and I, we did the um, Karoo, Osceola Karoo Lego Traverse, where we went in uh, from Hearts, and we went, if you look at the map, you'll see it's in the central Pasadena. Yeah. And we came out on uh, Ptarmigan Peak. And um, it's just, there's no trail, really. It's just adventuring, uh, roaming through the remote Pasadena. And that area, to me, just sort of epitomizes the wild Pasadena. Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of a thing. Um, if I could go back in there, I would I'd do it in a minute. Yeah. You know, I might have to plan a trip out there. My friend has a cabin in Mazama. Uh, sure. And yeah. So, and now I'm just, he's a, one of my mountaineering friends. So it's yeah, well, if you look at the map of the Pasayton and look at uh, Mount Lego and Dot Mountain, um, Mount Karoo and Osceola Peak, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. I'll check that out. And then, yeah, we're going to do uh, southern pickets. We're going to try to do southern and northern pickets. Oh, the whole thing, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's quite a quite an adventure. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but I work with the, uh, with the school, so yeah. with that, I get unemployment in the summer. So that'll oh, be there nice. you go. It's, yeah. <laughs> My son doesn't have school in the summer, too, and so it's like, I guess I'd rather spend that quality time with him, you know, and sure. also have my own trips to throw in there with it. So, Absolutely. Yeah, it'll be a blast. And that's another thing that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help him introduce him to more mountaineering aspects, but like really, you know, uh, yeah. really easy and accessible. Take him skiing. Take him skiing. So that's the thing is he, he loves skiing. My, my long game here is like, at least when he's older, I start getting him to do like cross-country skiing. And, you know, just not any dangerous, dangerous stuff, but... Yeah, take him down to Stevens and get him into ski school. Yeah, oh, okay, I'll take him into ski school. Yeah. Be cool. do, do you have kids, if you don't mind me asking? I have no kids. You have no kids? If I do, they, they haven't found me yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. By this point in life, I think they would have found me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had my son really young, so it's almost like uh, with a lot of these experiences, because I don't know, there's what I see often <coughs> is like, when you're younger, right, you, you try to like, you strive, people strive right. a lot, and they're ambitious, and like for me, it causes me to have to dial it back. Yeah. So that because if I if I were to be striving for like the biggest or the most technical or even even like the most remote and then go and commit to it like the uh, gateway of the arches in sure. Alaska, right? Um, that would be at almost a sacrifice to myself. Yeah. To 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 a degree because it takes oh, like I understand. a big commitment. So I'm like having to to draw back all of these, these desires. There's so many opportunities nearby, and you don't have to. You know, if you wanna, if you wanna have a, an Arctic-like experience, go do a traverse across the Hamathco Ice Field in British Columbia, or go up to Canadian Rockies and do it. You know, it's not like you have to. You know, people get obsessed with going, like, to Mount Everest, or you know, I don't. I, I've never really understood that because, you know, there's so many wild, untraveled areas close at hand. Um, and so much inspiration if you look for it locally. Yeah, I, I agree, because that's the thing that I was going to mention. Also, is I've talked to my friend uh, Calvin, and he's an experienced mountaineer in the area, and I was talking to him about Everest and why why like, Everest isn't something that like, his dream climb. Because from an outsider's point of view, a 
them out in years and be like, well, why do you want, you want to climb the biggest thing, right? Um, yeah. And for him, it's, no, because it's it's physically demanding, but not technically challenging. In the sense that there's like already set gear. Yeah, sure, I understand that. And his desire is something else entirely. Yeah, it's like I, to understand. I'm starting to understand that nuance within myself because you look at the Northern Cascades, and it's like I have I have dreams within there that I want to check off, and those mean more to me than anything that's like critically acclaimed or you know recognized. Sure. Right. You could always become a uh, hundred highest guy. What's that? Um, it's uh, people who set out to climb the hundred highest points in uh, Washington State. There's actually groups all over the place. Like you could, you know, try to climb the highest point in every state. Um, there's the county high pointers, like in in Washington State. That means going to each county and standing on the highest point in that county, which would put you on top of Mount Rainier for one thing, mm-hmm. Mount Adams. But it might also have you standing out in a wheat field somewhere in eastern Washington. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> check it out. I had to do like a blog post about that. I'm in the highest oh, yeah. place in this Well, county. you should. I mean, but there's every uh, fall, there's a big party down in Seattle. Oh, really? Uh, from what's called the Bulgers, B-U-L-G-E-R-S. And they celebrate the next person to have accomplished climbing the high, 100 highest Whoa. mountains in Washington State. That is so cool. Yeah, it's a great climbing party. Um, for a mountaineer, what, in your experience, what introduced you to other people who, who are mountaineers in the area? Like, what kind of either um, events or organizations did you participate in? Well, let's see. You have the mountaineers, of course, <laughs> down in Seattle. Um, my avenue to the wild, wider world of mountaineering came through Austin Post. Mm-hmm who was friends with John Roper, who's a noted climber from Seattle. And back then, I was doing more geological stuff than mountaineering stuff. And Austin Post tipped off John Roper to what I was doing, because I had just started putting it up on the internet. Yeah. And that got posted into Cascade Climbers mm-hmm. way back then. And from there, it just snowballed. Um, that, that's really, that was my route into the wider mountaineering world. Yeah, it's huh. really cool. Yeah. And when you do uh, geological stuff, uh, what is that? Is that like capturing the, the features of the rock? No, it's glaciers. Oh, it's glaciers, okay. Yeah. And do you have like, do you study glaciers or do you capture glaciers? Like, I'm not a scientist. Yeah. I always tell people I'm not a scientist. I have a scientific interest, but I, you know, if you want to talk about glaciers, you got to go talk to John Riedel from North Cascades National Park. Yeah. Or uh, Andrew Fountain from Portland State, or you know, there's a host of glacial experts out there. I'll be sure to include them in the show notes. If, I'll look to see if they have do they have any work that's available online. Oh yeah, yeah, it's all over the place. I'll be sure to include links to that though in the show notes, and I'll probably follow up with them because I don't know. It's my it's a growing fascination that I'm having with like, glaciers. Uh, yeah, especially in the area, you know, and also yeah. the volcanoes too. Yeah, look at. Uh, uh, Dan Fager over at the Northern Rocky Mountain Research Center uh, north of Kalispell because I photographed all the glaciers in Glacier National Park a couple different times. Um, Andrew Fountain, uh, Grand Teton, Simeon Kasky, um, Colorado State, Dan McGrath. 
there are, I'm just naming a very few, these are the guys I've worked with and worked for, mm -hmm. but there's a vast trove of information out there. So, you know, if you start searching for it, you'll find it. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, because the thing that fascinates me about the glaciers in this area, from, maybe I misunderstood it, but uh, in the Becky Guide from the Northern Cascades, uh, he talks about how the, the glaciers swell in the mid-1900s. Well, there's been various periods of advance and decline. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember the exact dates, but uh, yeah, there have been times, you know, glaciers are shrinking now, but there were other times when they were very active going down the hill and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the moraines and whatnot, you can see where they used to be. Mm -hmm. So, but we're getting into the realm of science yeah, now. Exactly. So, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, is there anywhere that people could check out your work, John? Well, I have my website. They could just Google my name and you'd see it. Um, I have two different websites. I have my uh, P-Base archive that you're probably familiar with. Yeah. Um, I also have a small photographic company that I run called Jagged Ridge Imaging. I have a website for that, jaggedridgeimaging.com. Um, my book is sold uh, in various places, either through me or through Wolverine Publishing in uh, Colorado, my publisher. Um, it's available locally in bookstores too, like Elliott Bay and Village Books and so on. Cool. Thank you very much, Sean. I really appreciate your time. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. Woo! John has led a life rife with adventure. I am certainly excited to get out there and pursue my own type of adventure. It's interesting the way that his love of the mountains, mountaineering, and mountaineering has evolved into his love for flying. If you'd like to check out more of John's images, you can go jaggedridgeimaging.com. You can also check out his newest book, which is called Snow Inspire Flights to Winter in the North Cascades Range. And if you'd like to learn more about the North Cascade Range, you could check out the Fred Becky books of the North Cascades. You can find them on Amazon and probably at your library. If you guys would like to support the show, please rate, review on Google, iTunes, um, Stitcher, wherever else you happen to listen to the show, and share it with a friend, you guys. You can check us out at becominghumanpodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and have a great week. Goodbye.